the book. This is uh, part 15. How we got it, how to get the most out of it. If you came in somehow and were missed and didn't get study notes or a prayer list, those things happen. We'll bring you one gladly. If you just put your hand up, ushers will bring you a study note that uh, will help you along with the study tonight and a prayer list when we take some needs to the Lord in just a little while. But you have to put your hand up and hold it there till they see you. Training in righteousness. Uh, the text that we've kind of settled in on for this section of the study is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. You have that in your notes? Do any of you others have it in your notes? Let's read it aloud and in unison, okay? It'll, it'll just make me know that you're awake. All right, let's read it all together. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Here's where we were last Sunday night. We've worked through teaching, reproof, correction, and now training in righteousness. And um, last Sunday night, we started kind of a detailed study because I said that the word righteousness is used in three or four different ways in the New Testament. And we'll never be able to fully and properly understand um, many verses in the New Testament or the nature of sin or salvation until we get a, a good handle on how the Bible uses that term righteousness. I would dare say that the average person just equates sin with bad deeds. And that's kind of true. I mean, the Bible has these lists of bad things, and they certainly are called wickedness, they're called sin, they're called unrighteousness. But if that's the only understanding you have of sin, then you'll have a hard time figuring out why the Bible says, for example, Isaiah 64, 6, that um, our righteous deeds are like the old King James filthy rags, ESV, um, a polluted garment. Not, not, our, not our bad deeds, our righteous deeds. And so you're faced with this question, can the good things that I do be considered unrighteousness? Can, can the good things that I do be considered sinful? And so we started looking at that last week. Um, the idea that bad people go to hell and good people go to heaven is, is uh, the dominant view of the man on the street, the woman on the street, 
the view he has about whatever there is after death, you don't want to be doing bad things. That's not going to work well for you. You want to be doing good things. You want to be telling the truth. You want to be honest. You want to be kind. You want to help the poor. Um, this is going to help you out after you die. There's the common understanding of judgment and reward if they hold those beliefs at all. So the idea there is uh, getting ready for heaven involves doing more good things than bad things because there's a chart that somehow gets kept. And if you do too many bad things and not enough good things, well, um, in that great hymn of the church, he's making a list, checking it twice. It's you know, this is where it's going. So this is no small, unrelated topic. So we looked at teaching, reproof, correction, and I started out last week in our study of Paul's fourth benefit of the Word of God in our lives, what he calls training in righteousness. And we started to see that that word righteousness is used, let's say, three different ways in the Bible. And the first, this is what we spent last Sunday night looking at. The first use of the word is negative, and it has nothing to do with what Paul is talking about in our text, describing as training in righteousness. The first is the use of righteousness when it's understood to mean my attempt to, to um, merit, my attempt to um, position myself favorably in my relationship with God by doing good things. Those acts of righteousness are, are described as, as filthy rags, something really, really soiled. Kind of, you know, you go into an old garage somewhere that, that no one's been in for 20 years and in the corner behind a bunch of cans and paint and goodness knows what, there's under a bunch of dust, there's a, there's just a clump of rags in the corner. And, and, and here's the prophet saying that, that's, Don, that's the very best that you can do in terms of pleasing God with your own works. This, this is what, it, it's not even a matter of God being nasty, it's a matter of him in his nature being so holy, so righteous, so perfect, and everything I do so tainted by self and pride that, that the good things I do from his perspective, that's what they look like. We fall so short of his glory. We fall so short of his glorious standards. The good things we do to earn our merit, our standing before God, are always going to be tainted with pride and self-accomplishment. It cannot be otherwise. And, and the problem with that is anything that robs God of all glory is the ultimate sin. Anything that robs God of all glory is the ultimate sin. So anything that I do to promote my own goodness and earn my standing before such a God can't be viewed in any other way but sinful, rebellious, 
proud, arrogant. Now, now think about that for a minute, because this has profound, profound implications. Here are two people who both do the same thing in, um, pick a righteous deed, giving a meal to a homeless person. Here's someone who does it, and here's another person who does it. They, they present the very same meal to this homeless person. In one case, it is an act of Christ-likeness that pleases the Father of all glory. In another case, the same meal to the same homeless person is an act of infinite sinfulness. Because if I do that to this homeless person, now, he gets benefit. He gets a meal either way. I, I understand that. I'm talking about me and my relationship with God. If I do that thinking, if I just do enough good things, I'm going to get God to like me. And I'm going to go to heaven. And if I go with that heart, the homeless person gets the same meal. In this case, Jesus has done so much for me. This is a brother or sister, a human being made in his image. And I want the beauty of Jesus to be seen here, that God be glorified. Then that's an act of beautiful righteousness. If it's done to merit, merit my position before God, it's, it's a horrendously wicked deed. And I don't think that the average church person thinks of it in terms of those distinctions. We're not done yet with our study of biblical righteousness. There are two more ways the word is used. Don't worry, if we're going to get through both of them, we're going to go quick. So, self-righteousness. All our righteousness as filthy rags. These are good deeds, not bad deeds, good deeds done out of a proud attempt to merit my standing before God. Those kinds of deeds will always be ugly in the eyes of our Creator. Secondly, there is imputed righteousness. The all-important point here is this. If God rejects self-righteousness, however passionately it's offered, this imputed righteousness is the kind He loves and accepts. Romans 3, 21 to 24. Paul writes, it's a long theological passage, you kind of have to jump into the middle of it. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He says, you would think this is a brand new concept, but it's, but it's, always, been, it's always been projected, Isaiah 53, those kinds of texts. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. For all have sinned, Jew, Gentile, fall short of the glory of God. That's doing the best they can possibly do. Fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a what? As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Or here's a text that makes it even clearer. 2 Corinthians 5.21 for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. 
So that key phrase, it's in the Romans text, it's in the Second Corinthians text, the righteousness of God. God has always, Paul says in the Romans 3 text, the law and the prophets always bore witness to this. You think of Abraham going up the mount with Isaac, remember? Go sacrifice your son Isaac, up he goes. It's a brief account, and we don't get to look at the agony in this man's heart. And he gets up there, and he's going to obey the Lord. It was never God's, ever God's intention to do such a thing. The, the wicked, idolatrous nations do that. And he stops Abraham. There's a, there's a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. There, there's your sacrifice. God will provide the lamb. So last Sunday we saw how the Pharisees were, were of the same mind as the crowd who killed the prophets, who came with this message of the coming, uh, suffering for sin Messiah, the Lamb of God. Imputed righteousness is a righteousness received apart from works through commitment to the reality and adequacy of the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross. We are, Paul says, declared righteous. Clothed in his righteousness. We used to sing that. Clothed in his righteousness alone. Faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground. What other ground? Well, the ground of me trying to do it on my own. Being the best person I can sinking sand. No one, not even our own hearts, can accuse or condemn us because God has declared us clean in Christ. That's the thrust of that Romans 8, 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? I say in the notes, you, 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 you need to have something to say. Doubt comes, condemnation comes. You're never going to feel worthy. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, how is God for us? He who did not spare his own son gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God deed is interceding for us. If you don't have righteousness in Christ, what do you say? How many poor people? How many meals? How much money? How many good deeds? What is enough? What, where's the bar? How do I know if I've made it? You're never going to escape those questions. You won't be able to sleep at night. What if I'm not good enough? Sure, I'm, I'm better than Ron. But what if I'm not good enough? There's, there's, there's no road home with that kind of righteousness. The only way to peace with God, freedom from fear, and freedom from doubt and condemnation is the central place given to the death, resurrection of Christ, and the imputed righteousness of Christ, declared righteous. Why does God accept that righteousness? Because he gets all the glory. There's no room for pride. So there's self-righteousness. 
good deeds made ugly. There's imputed righteousness, not earned through my effort, but faith in Christ, the righteousness of Christ. Thirdly, there's the righteousness of sanctification. And now we're coming to the kind of righteousness Paul is winding up with in our Second Timothy text. I'll talk about that in just a minute in closing. So the Bible talks about this kind of righteousness in a way that confuses a lot of Christians. Here's the issue. If everything I just said about imputed righteousness is true, and everything about Christ's death and resurrection and the righteousness of Christ credited to me, if all of that is true, it emphasizes uh, the inadequacy, the inability of me earning my standing before God. If that's all true, then how do we fit in sanctifying righteousness when it seems to be such a requirement? Romans 6.19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present, present your, 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 your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Look at 1 John 2, 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, that raises questions for a lot of believers. In a nutshell, how can righteousness be both freely given and rigorously required. Which is it? And the answer is, yes. How can God be both gracious and demanding at the very same time? And the answer to that is making sure you have a, a, a good foundation, a proper understanding of what happens at genuine conversion. The, the problem is, when you come to, and one of the books on the new, uh, Ron will talk about it, on the summer reading list, it's on our website under links, and there's an excellent book. Um, I'm trying to remember the title. It has something to do with Discipleship, the Evidence of Saving Faith, something like that. It's a tremendous book, not maybe as easy to get as I would like. But conversion must never be reduced just to a one-time decision where we, quotes, accept Jesus. I don't, I don't have any battle with that. I don't have any fight with that. I'm not saying it's a terrible term. I'm just saying it's never used in the New Testament. It's not used in the Bible anywhere, accepting Jesus. It's fine to use the term as long as we know that we are accepting all of Jesus. When we accept Jesus, we put our lives in Christ, following the Lord as deeply as he leads. Imputed righteousness, 
that gift of righteousness I don't earn. I don't have to accomplish something first in order to get it. It's given to bad people, not to good people. It's given to repentant people, not perfect people. So there's this gift of imputed righteousness. And it makes me clean. All of my sin, all of my guilt, whatever my past, nothing can separate me from the presence of a holy God. God dealt justly with all of my sin, all of my guilt in the death of his son on the cross. That's that 2 Corinthians 5.21 text. For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin. You ever think about when you read that? Not just to carry my sin. He, he made him to, to be sin. He knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteous, the righteousness of God. That's a great exchange. And we should just continually rejoice in that marvelous grace. But what, what does that grace? It enters. It enters freely. The righteousness of Christ, my sin dealt with in his body, on the cross. Grace enters. What does it do when it enters? It has to do more than just make me thankful. When God did that, saved me, converted, born again, whatever expression you want to use, he did more than just change my record. He starts to change my heart. So if Christ saved you at all, John says his, God puts his seed, his seed in you. Um, a, a voracious all-consuming, love-driven hunger to obey Father God in everything, just the way Jesus lived his whole life, not to do his will, but the will of the Father. How do you know that? Well, because I'm a branch abiding in a vine, and the life of the vine is flowing into the branch, and it's supposed to look the same in increasing measure. That's different from self-righteousness, trying to desperately to earn my standing by doing good things. This is the life of Christ through grace flowing into my life, reproducing itself out of, out of, out of love for Christ, devotion to Christ, a nature that's being transformed, a heart that's being reshaped, a, a, a humble righteousness relying on Christ. Now true, Without his imputed grace and righteousness, I could never achieve my standing before him in any way, shape, or form. I could never be saved by my own good works in a thousand years any more than Israel could be delivered from Egypt on her own. That's the picture in the Old Covenant. But once I have received his freely bestowed grace, there's a foundation laid, a seed planted for the transformation of my whole being. The chains, it's not just inward, it starts to manifest itself outwardly. This isn't in your notes. So you want to scribble it in. This reference, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. I was just thinking about this as they were singing the first chorus tonight. Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. The love of 
Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. Who's the he there? That's Jesus, right? He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sakes died and was raised. So, here are the truths the church needs to understand out of all this theology of, of righteousness. We're, we're 80% done. First, God always has and always will and always does call all of us to forsake any attempt at pleasing him apart from faith in Jesus Christ. If there is a sin, if I can use the term this way because we, we hear the phrase, if there's a sin for which God has zero tolerance, it is anything that minimizes the central place given to salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. People involved in the world's religions need desperately to be saved because they can't do enough good deeds apart from Christ to please God. Second, if we are saved at all, it is only through embracing the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our works apart from Christ are still just filthy rags. Three, if free grace and imputed righteousness don't lead to holy living, my salvation is bogus. I don't know if that's a New Testament word. The whole process doesn't happen overnight. I know that. I get it. But the direction of the Christian is consistently settled. Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. When did the grace of God appear, bringing salvation to all people? What's he talking about? It's something we saw, something visible. He's talking about when Jesus came, when he died on the cross. God incarnate. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Twelve, training us. And I want to come back to that phrase because it relates to our text. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. So it's not, just a matter of, it's not just a matter of us working hard to be righteous. It's responding to the grace of God. That grace is what leads us to train in righteousness. If it's just moral improvement, you'll never get there. Training, training us, verse 12. Here's the last point. I said I wanted to come back after looking at that training us. Now, here's where you'll see that same term in our text, second 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the fourth point. How does the righteousness of sanctification grow in my life? Because I can imagine there might be people here or people who will see this on the internet and are going to say, this, isn't, this doesn't work. I've accepted Jesus 20 times and I still struggle with the same sins. There's no growth, there's no change. How, how, how does this work? Paul says in Titus, training us. Now here's our text. All scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Same idea. 
that the man or woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So, in moving on to this last step, Paul is assuming the proper place has been given to the first three, teaching, people know the truth, reproof, correction. Hopefully, all of these things are happening in this room. Insight comes. And then you feel the pushback of your own desire. I'm not, I'm not there. There's, there's, there's something that, that chafes against it. And so, reproof. Training. So you see the correction and then training in righteousness. That word training is, is the word paideia. It's the word Paul uses, the very same word, when he talks about bringing up children in the paideia and instruction of the Lord, Ephesians 6, 4. The, the idea there is that children won't make it with just information. There need to be structures and patterns and discipline and practice in the ways of the Lord. Because since the fall, a child's learning requires more than just information. That's what you're working against in your child's life. There's something else there. Now, in just the same way, none of us is going to be automatically totally inclined to growth in righteousness just because we know the truth. God spoke to us. Here's the correct way. I mean, we all love righteousness in principle, but when the pursuit of righteousness starts to cost my own, uh, what I perceive as my own personal liberty, my right to self-rule, my own pursuit, the way I want to secure my life on my terms, whenever, whenever God's righteousness cuts across that, we feel that conflict. So he doesn't just talk about righteousness, he talks about training in righteousness. Whatever God reveals of his truth, this is a rule for all of us. Whatever God reveals of his truth, whatever he exposes of our sin, whatever he speaks of his correction, the reshaping of my life at that point is not going to be quick and it's not going to be easy. Whenever God speaks, teaches, whenever there's reproof, whenever there's correction, I need to go into training make it work in my life. Got a membership at a gym? If you are like a lot of people, uh, I've never done it, but I know people who buy memberships at a gym and discover just buying the membership won't do it. Bring your mind and wrap it around this truth. Nothing, nothing is going to totally reshape your life in any Sunday church service. Hopefully, we're exposed to the truth in different settings. We will, if we're wise, we'll make decisions to respond, to obey the Lord. We should always decide to act on the truth right away before we forget what we've heard, like James in the mirror. But those initial responses are only designed to lead up to 
training in habits of holiness, and no one can do it for you. Many people make the mistake of assuming that because imputed righteousness was given freely apart from their works, that sanctifying righteousness is going to come the very same way, and it won't. In any area of growth in sanctifying righteousness, sanctified living, we must, with the help of the Holy Spirit, train in the specific area where reproof has come, train in that area of righteousness until a holy habit gets formed. That's where the idea of training in righteousness kicks in. Sociologists say it takes 40 days to ingrain a habit. All our habits are like this. Maybe you're here, maybe you're here tonight and you, you smoke, and, and you can look back at how awful that first cigarette tasted. It made you sick to your stomach. Unfortunately, you stayed with it. Maybe before you came to church tonight, you, you took a tube of toothpaste and you put it on your toothbrush. You never thought about it. It's just a habit. Have you ever watched a two-year-old try to do it? Imagine what this world would be like if people quit building other habits in life like they gave up on training in righteousness. What if every time you put on your shoe, maybe you don't wear loafers, you had to actually think through, how do you, how do you tie them again? Where would we be without habits? You're going to, service will end, you'll have a burger, or a hot dog, you'll head home, you'll get into your car. Do you, okay, do you put the key in the ignition first? Or do you put the car in gear first? Is, is the brake pedal the long, narrow one on the right? What in the world do D, R, and N mean? Well, you don't think about any of those things. It's, it's formed as a habit in your life. Oh, what a blessing good habits are. This is what Paul has in mind when he talks about training in righteousness. Here, here's the final word from Paul on it. It's 1 Timothy 4, 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather... Train yourself for godliness. So the silly myth will tell you that there's some other way to be outwardly righteous. That word train, I'll tell you the word and you tell me what English word we get from it. The word train is gymnazo. What word do you think we get from that? Gymnasium. Make no mistake about it. The only way sanctifying righteousness comes, you've got to get into God's gym. Don't wait to receive a prayer life. You will never receive a prayer life. You build a prayer life. You build one like you build muscles. You don't receive discernment. You build discernment as you use the truth that you know. Hebrews 5.14, but solid food is for the mature. Those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice distinguish good from evil. You won't shake some sinful habit from your life with just some light effort. Jesus says you pluck out your right eye, you chop off your hand. Habits drop off the way the last 10 pounds of a diet drop off. Get into the gym. 
get into the gym. So the Bible says, self-righteousness, the attempt to earn your way to heaven will get you nowhere. It's, it's those good deeds turn into proud, arrogant, sinful acts in the eyes of God. Imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, grace, it gets infused into our lives apart from works. How does it manifest itself? It will drive you to the gym. It will drive you to the gym. It will be this way your whole Christian life until Jesus comes again. So what's the take home? The take home is this. Next time someone asks you to help out in the church in some area, to give somebody a ride, to teach a class, to work with children, to help with BBS, to start coming to church Sunday night, you're here preaching to the choir. The next time something like that happens, Get your runners on and follow Jesus to the gym. It's hard, you're busy, you don't have time, but that's the Holy Spirit trying to make a great Christian out of you. Get into the gym. Training in righteousness.